Welcome to the New Legal Realism Podcast. The New Legal Realism Project promotes rigorous and genuinely interdisciplinary scholarship on law in action. Today's podcast is an interview with Riaz Tajani and Emily Taylor Poppy, the co-chairs of the Collaborative Research Network. Emily Taylor Poppy is an assistant professor of law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. She's an interdisciplinary empirical scholar whose research is broadly focused on how individuals engage with the legal system, the structure and work of the legal profession, and the relationship between social inequality and the development of law. Her research has appeared in the Journal of Empirical Legal Studies and Law and Society Review, among other journals. She holds a PhD in sociology from Cornell University and a JD from Northwestern University School of Law. Riaz Tajani is an associate professor of business ethics at the University of Redlands. His work investigates the interaction of legal and business ethics with an emphasis on race and class inequality, access to justice, and higher education. His recent articles have appeared in American Ethnologist, UC Irvine Law Review, and the Political and Legal Anthropology Review. He has a PhD in social anthropology from Princeton University and a JD from the USC Gould School of Law. In this podcast, we discuss what the Collaborative Research Network is, as well as each of these scholars' own research. We also discuss some of the exciting panels that took place at the 2021 Law and Society Association annual meeting, but note that this podcast was recorded just prior to that meeting. I'm just going to start with a really general question for our listeners, which is what is the Collaborative Research Network and what are your visions for it going forward? Well, so uh, I guess really generally we are CRN 28, uh, New Legal Realism. And so at the most, uh, at the highest level of generality, we're kind of uh, picking up this um, thread that Beth and Meredith have uh, started before us, um, extending much of the classic legal realism into the modern age. So rooted in things like obviously law and action, um, uh, empirical research methods, um, and um, a a sort of descriptive and interpretive uh, approach to the study of law. Uh, Emily, do you wanna pick it up? Yeah, I guess I I might go even bigger just to start by talking about CRNs and how they function. So collaborative research network CRNs are part of the law and society associations way of making what is a massive conference and a massive organization um, a little bit more organized. So it's a way for scholars to find each other and for people to find others who are doing similar work or complementary work. And so it's a way that the conference that happens every year is organized. But beyond that, it's sort of a way for people to find uh, intellectual kin, if you will. And so as Riaz said, we are CRN 28. And so our goal is to be an intellectual home within the Law and Society Association for people who are interested in new legal realism. Okay, great. And so you are the two new co-chairs of the network. I'm wondering if you have, maybe it's too new, but you know, have you had time to discuss what your plans for it moving forward would be? Um, well, just starting with this year, in, to get ready for this year's um, annual meeting of the Law and Society Association, we put together several panels. 
Um, and we're really excited about those. And I'll, I can let Riaz talk about the ones that he's working on. And two of the ones that I'm working on um, where I'll be serving as the chair and the discussant. One is a group of papers and scholars who are looking at law and language. And so thinking about how people um, with regard to law write for different audiences, whether they're judges or the media or the public and thinking about how that shapes the way that they make arguments and that they use law and the way that that actually then ultimately shapes what law comes to be. And then a second panel that I'll be working on um, that I'll be serving as the chair and discussant for is focused on uh, political theory and governance. And it's a, a range of papers from multiple countries. We have an interesting comparative perspective and they're all thinking about ways that um, law and political theory come together and again, affect the way that law is interpreted, created, structured. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to really interesting conversations in those two panels at Law and Society. Yeah, and I have um, uh, taken charge of one on legal education post COVID-19 um, and specifically how scholars within our network can apply uh, realist approaches to sort of uh, understanding new problems that have been opened up or old problems have been exacerbated by, by the crisis. So, you know, things like uh, access to, um, to legal education, access to the profession, um, things like, you know, restructuring of the bar exam as it's discussed across uh, around the country. And then um, we have several others that we've kind of co-sponsored and uh, joined up with with some of the other CRNs. We have um, anthropologists among lawyers, which is looking at uh, anthro scholars that are housed in law schools um, doing ethnographic type work uh, co-sponsored with CRN uh, number three. And then um, a new books in the field uh, uh, panel that we're co-sponsoring with some of the same people uh, along with CRN uh, eight. Uh, in labor rights. So we're uh, crossing um, our, boundary, our, our borders a little bit to join up with others. And uh, those are some of the ones that I'm, I'm, I'm excited about. There's also a um, new legal realism uh, evaluating the past, present, and future, which is featuring uh, this edited volume that has recently come out, uh, edited by Shohin Talesh and um, Beth and uh, Heinz Klug that we're, um, that we're proud of as well. In addition to, of course, attending these conferences and attending these panels, do you have recommendations for scholars for how they can get involved in CRN? Yeah, and that's one of the things that we're looking forward to building on um, as we kind of look to take the CRN moving forward. So for one thing, we would love scholars to attend panels and, and get in touch with us. Um, in part so they can be a part of future events at Law and Society, um, whether serving, whether presenting their own work or serving as a discussant or helping to organize a panel, all, any and all are, are great. But um, Riaz and I have also started thinking about ways that we can move the CRN forward and how we can work to continue to be a resource to other scholars interested in these topics and in this approach. And so one of the things that, that we've talked about is seeing the CRN as an on-ramp for people who are interested in new legal realism. Um, so thinking about 
people, scholars who want to incorporate a new legal realist perspective in their teaching or in their own research. Part of what we'd like is to be able to be a resource for people who are maybe new to the area, but interested in taking these approaches. And so serving as a, a resource in that way. Yeah, and I, I wanted to add to that, you know, um, uh, there's quite a few law society scholars who over time encountered in, uh, in law schools in particular, the uh, power of our colleagues in law and economics as they've been able to um, organize institutionally and as well as, well as um, enter the curriculum in some, some subtle and not so subtle ways. And so we, we kind of started to see ourselves uh, plan, envision ourselves to be a kind of um, uh, alternative clearinghouse for socio-legal scholars who are observing some of the um, the uh, the changes in, in in law school curriculum and legal education as it encounters uh, law and economics, and want to engage uh, constructively with with um, with what we're seeing in that regard. So that's another important thing. Maybe changing gears a little bit. I know our listeners always enjoy hearing about the specific research um, going on in the NLR movement generally. So. I wonder if we can just have both of you talk about your own research and how that connects up with the NLR movement. Um, we can start with you, Emily. Sure. My research broadly is focused around social and economic inequalities and access to justice in the civil law sphere. Um, so I think about how do civil problems and civil issues arise and how do people react to them and then ultimately, what outcomes are they able to achieve? And are those fair? Um, are they satisfied with those outcomes? And then thinking about the way that lawyers and legal institutions play a role in shaping that process, in addition to black letter law itself. So I, I've looked at this substantively in a number of different areas. Uh, I first started with my dissertation was on residential foreclosures in New York City during the financial crisis. More recent work, I've looked at estate planning and the laws of secession that govern how properties distributed at death. Um, so I have a paper that's just out um, that's looking at the way in which the laws of intestacy, which control how property is distributed at death, um, if you don't have an estate plan, deal with different family structures differently. So I've, I've looked at sort of a number of different things and also thought about legal education and interventions to create greater equality and access to civil justice. And for me, new legal realism is really helpful in thinking about um, for one thing, just sort of validating this approach to caring about what happens with law out in the real world. Um, when I was in law school, one of the things that was so striking to me was there were no people. <laughs> you know, I we would read these cases yeah. and it was all just abstracted out to legal principles and they were plaintiffs or defendants, but they weren't people. Mm -hmm. And um, so you know, my scholarship is very much about real people and real problems in their real lives and, and how do they respond to that? And, and what does that mean for our understanding of justice and equality in the world? Uh, and then the other thing about new legal realism that I really appreciate is thinking that it's really important for other lawyers to understand this and that it comes back to 
presenting this viewpoint in legal education. So that also not only affects my research, but um, also affects my teaching. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the methodology you use? Yeah, I'm, I'm a quant person. Uh, I'm a big tent person. I love one of the things about new legal realism and, and about sociolegal studies more broadly is that it is multidisciplinary. Uh, and I love that, that we have qualitative work and quantitative work, um, but I myself am a quantitative empirical person. So usually I'm doing um, you know, statistical quantitative stuff, sometimes descriptive, sometimes I try to get a little bit further um, toward a causal explanation, but um, that's generally my approach. And Riaz, I guess you know what the questions are now, but can you maybe give an overview of, of your research and how it connects up with the NLR movement as well? Yeah, sure. Um, so I consider myself generally a, a student of law and neoliberalism or law and market fundamentalism, uh, applying ethnographic methods to, to, to the study. So I'm trained in both law and anthropology uh, with um, Beth being a longtime mentor uh, to me, along with Carol Greenhouse and, and others. And so my first uh, book project uh, came out in 2017, and it was an ethnography of a for-profit law school. And, um, uh, you know, it's it, it, in many ways a study of kind of the deregulation uh, of legal education at the, in, the, in the period leading up to uh, the advent of for-profit law schools and then kind of the uh, effects on uh, access to the profession that this had, as well as kind of deleterious effects that this had on, um, on students uh, you know, post-graduation and, um, and their student debt levels and so forth. So uh, that's clearly taking kind of the, the realist methods um, that go back uh, many, many years and applying it to the study of um, this one particular unique kind of institution and, and very much connecting with the work that Beth and others have done um, looking at uh, inequality and, and legal education. Um, and then my most recent work is looking specifically at um, law and economics as a as a movement and as a kind of um, a, a formation for uh, professional ethics and trying to connect uh, what uh, uh, law and economics uh, has made it, been able to do with law school curriculum and what, what we see on the outside world in business law and corporate law um, and professional ethics uh, in, in that context. So that, that's sort of a, a general, those are, those are sort of the two facets of my general interest in, in law, and, uh, law and markets. Great, and you mentioned ethnography, but I wonder if you can give a little more detail on what your methodology is. Yeah, so ethnography, as we understand it in anthropology, which is gonna be slightly different from, from sociology and others, um, is this sort of uh, long-term qualitative fieldwork-based uh, study of a particular community, village, institution, um, and really trying to uh, get get deep with, um, with the, uh, what, what, how people experience the law, how people experience um, rules, norms, et cetera, and institutions. Um, and, uh, you know, we rely quite heavily on, on interviews as well as participant observations. Great. Um, I kind of wanted to go back to something you said, Emily, about um, kind of integrating NLR into your legal education. And I'm wondering if either or both of you can respond to how you see the best way to integrate NLR the NLR agenda into legal education? I um, think I, I, it's hard for me to imagine how I could teach law any other way. Mm -hmm. um, it's, to me, it's just really fundamental that my students 
not only understand theoretical doctrinal arguments or theoretical legal reasoning types of arguments, but to really think about the policy choices that are embedded in law and the effects that those are likely to have on different groups of people. Uh, I teach as my two kind of core teaching classes, I teach civil procedure, which we call procedural analysis um, at UCI law. And I teach wills and trusts. And in both of those classes, I think it's really important for people to think and for students to understand that the laws that they're learning, the black letter law, the rules, the statutes have a real impact um, in life. And so in Civ Pro, civil procedure, I spend a lot of time thinking about getting students to understand this idea of rules matter. They matter for who wins and who loses. And I start the class most years by having students um, start by introducing themselves, talking about a game that they like to play and how knowing the rules of the game affect your ability to win. Mm -hmm. And it's really funny because, you know, some people pick Scrabble and other people pick a sport and, you know, inevitably we get a Dungeons and Dragons person. I mean, we get all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but over and over again, they talk about, oh, well, because I understand this, I can strategize. Or if I have these resources, I can better strategize and, and be instrumental in my actions. And it just really sets us up for the whole semester when we talk about different parties are differently situated to be able to maneuver and use the law and use the civil litigation process to achieve the outcomes they desire. And then you know, a great example. It's, it's, it's always fun. Um, and then in wills and trusts, for me, it's a class where it's so easy to incorporate the personal because everybody can understand this. It, it, many students have had a death in their family. They've been through this process. They understand it sort of intuitively. And even if they haven't experienced that, they all have a family, you know, and everybody, every family's got its own um, challenges and quirks. And so everybody can sort of understand on a pretty personal level that these laws are are going to impact people and they have consequences for families and, and at, at really important points in people's lives. And it also is a really easy way to talk about access. Um, mm -hmm. Half of American adults don't have a will, in fact, more than half. And so it, it's the laws of intestacy, the default laws, rules that are going to determine what happens to their stuff when they die. And so it's a really easy way to, to, again, by bringing in empirical perspectives, you can make it clear how these things matter and how different groups in society are differently affected um, by these laws. Yeah, great. And Riaz, do you have any reactions to just the, the idea of how, how to integrate NLR into legal education? Yeah, I mean, my, my, my approach very much dovetails with, with what Emily is saying. I, I'm currently in a business school, but I uh, used to teach in, in, torts um, in one of the ABA law schools. And um, I, coming out of anthropology and coming with uh, ethnography as our background method, I believed uh, immediately when, up, upon starting that field work would be an opportunity uh, to for, for students, for 1L students uh, in, a, in a class like torts to get to know what it would be like to apply some of these concepts um, in, in the practice setting. And at, at that time, 
the, the term practice readiness was, was coming into vogue um, among uh, kind of legal ed reformers. And so, uh, Beth, and Beth and others organized back in 2016, there's this Cambridge series on um, uh, new legal realism. And I have a chapter in there called Fielding Legal Realism that basically uh, lays out my approach to setting up a in-class um, field work uh, exercise in which tort students would go out and interview personal injury attorneys, which um, everyone could, could find. And, you know, it, it helps the students to understand, uh, first of all, how to even uh, get out there and find someone um, through the system that's practicing in, in a specific area, but then also to sit down and talk with um, a plaintiff's attorney that might not be viewed by the uh, legal establishment as the most glamorous form of practice um, and uh, somebody that might be on the front lines in terms of access to justice. Uh, getting students to talk directly to those people, um, and and it was it was successful in the years that I did it. It was always pretty um, eye-opening for the students, and based on kind of those experiences, I drafted that chapter, which which I'm I'm pretty uh, happy with. I love that fielding. Uh, that that sounds awesome, Riaz. I, <laughs> I was just going to say this past semester, um, I was teaching this past year in the fall. I was teaching civil procedure remotely, and so I had students had to observe a Zoom court hearing. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was so eye-opening for them, right? They're watching these state court hearings. What they have been led to expect is basically a Supreme Court oral argument. And then, you know, they're watching these Zoom hearings and somebody can't get their video to work. And, <laughs> it, you know, it just was really shocking and eye-opening for them. And yet that is the majority of what law is in this country. Mm -hmm. You know, we spend so much time thinking about the Supreme Court and obviously it's incredibly important, but I, I think student law students often have a stilted view of the rule of law and the court system in, in this country. Yeah, and even uh, uh, you know, reading uh, appellate case squibs over and over doesn't exactly help with that either. So it's really important. That's actually another thing I do in my civil procedure classes there's a great chapter on the true story or more facts on the Lassiter case, which is about um, the termination of parental rights and whether there is a right to counsel in those cases. And it's really shocking for students to, to read the Supreme Court summary of the facts and then to read this chapter that lays out what the process was actually really like. And to see that difference, I think is really important for students to understand that facts as we come to see them in appellate opinions are really sterilized, simplified and shaped by argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so I, I just have one kind of topic or question left, but I just wanted to know um, what your thoughts are on the NLR movement developing and going forward. I think what, what we have talked about is that one of the huge benefits of new legal realism has been the fact that it is open to lots of different social science perspectives. And I think that's something that both of us feel um, strongly about. I'm a sociologist, as Raz has said, he's an anthropologist. Um, we're both lawyers too. We bring these different perspectives. And I think that's um, something we wanna, a strength that we'd like to continue to build on. I think what we'd love to see is growth of institutional support 
for the movement of new legal realism mm-hmm. and a, expansion, um, greater understanding of the goals, greater adoption of these goals, more of an impact on legal education, more support for scholars doing this type of work. So we'd both love to see it continue to, to grow and are, you know, are hoping we can do what we can to further that mission. Yeah, and Emily and I were talking a while back about just the variety of institutional settings that our colleagues, our uh, fellow travelers now find themselves in, uh, partly as a result of uh, academic hiring and partly as a result of like, um, you know, kind of market opportunities for socio-legal scholars where they are and where they aren't. And so I think recognizing the diversity of um, of, um, uh, places where our, our, our colleagues are teaching and doing research uh, reaching out more. So, you know, I'm thinking of like professional schools of business, professional schools of education, as well as uh, traditional social science and humanities departments, in addition to um, just straight up law schools, um, you know, doing a, doing as much as we can to try to like um, square the circle a little bit amongst all those different types of settings, because um, uh, I think th- there's more people doing this, this work um, in, in, in those contexts probably at this point, and we can bring them in a, a bit more. I guess one more aspect that that I would say that Riaz and I have talked about when we think about the growth and the outreach we hope for new legal realism is the ultimate hope in shaping legal education is not only that you reproduce yourself and your approach in new scholars, which certainly is part of it. I, I think we, we definitely are supportive of of that and, and new scholarship, but also practitioners. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's the one thing we haven't talked about, but also thinking about ways that we can build bridges to judges, practicing lawyers, nonprofits, and ways that we can possibly help our, to build bridges and, and allow our scholarship to be received by those audiences. I think is another aspect of a way for new legal realism to expand its reach. And, and I would um, add to that, uh, you know, watching the way that Beth has hand, um, organized this movement um, and kind of brought people together over the years uh, and kept people together has just been really, I mean, we've all kind of seen it and now to see it really up close, uh, the, the length that she has gone through to make sure that younger scholars are included, that their ideas are kept um, at the forefront, um, even when um, it, it takes it, it sometimes extreme effort on her part. It's just been really inspiring, and it's something that uh, I'm sure Emily, Emily and I really hope that we can carry, carry forward as part of what, what's going to hold this together and grow the movement. That kind of like uh, individual spark that, that, that um, our predecessors have um, is something that I'd like to maintain. That's a great point. And I, I have to say, I still remember my first meeting of the Lawn Society Association when I was in grad school. And it was fabulous to finally feel that I had found my larger intellectual home, but also how meaningful it was when people whose work I really admired uh, engaged with me and were in conversation with me about my work. And that was so meaningful and and important in my growth and development um, as a scholar. And so I definitely think I do have this desire to pay it forward 
um, and help other scholars on, on their road as well. I'd like to thank Francis Tung and the many researchers who are collaborating on this new Legal Realism project and for working to make this podcast happen. Visit NLR at www.newlegalrealism.org or on the blog at newlegalrealism.wordpress.com where new legal realists post on everything from law to the latest in jazz. You can also email us at newlegalrealism at gmail.com. This is the New Legal Realism Project podcast. Thanks for listening.